Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present. And I'd like to welcome everybody to Positive Talk Radio again. It's a new year. It's, well, it's been a new year for a whole nine days. I can't believe Christmas was nine or 15 <laughs> days ago already. It's, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. We got a great guest for you today. She is an author. She's a copywriter. She does editing. She does it all. And she's got a brand new book out. It's called 30,000 Steps. And we're going to talk about that and what it means to her, her family, and uh, everybody that knows her, her brother, and and uh, all about life. And, and so I'm really glad that you're here today. This is actually part one because we're going to um, leave this one at the end of the hour, and then we're going to go on to KKNW that you'll be able to watch on YouTube as well, our YouTube channel, so you can stay right here and you can watch all two hours, parts one and two. It'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. So with that, Jess Keith is with us. Jeff, Jeff, Jess. <laughs> Yeah, you're not a Jess. You're not. A, <laughs> you're a Jessica. So, do you like Jess or Jessica? I, I do prefer Jess, uh, but I'm very familiar with uh, the tongue twister nature of it. Whenever my phone dictates like voicemails, my phone thinks my name is Jeff. I think everyone's calling me Jeff. So, you know, whatever works, that's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I got to tell you, you look nothing like a Jeff. Of oh, Jeff. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Jeff, maybe more of like a Mohawk. Jeff. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, how are you? How was your new year? I'm great. Yeah. New Year's New Year's great. New Year, you know, like um, did a lot of traveling for the holidays. I uh, my partner and I live in Virginia now and went uh, up to Massachusetts where my family is for the holidays, which was wonderful. Um, it was my first time up there in kind of a while because of COVID and all kinds of craziness. So it was great to spend time with the fam. Um, yeah, it's good. How was your new year? Quiet. Nice. Very quiet. Love it. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, a, I had a small family to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then two years ago, my brother passed away. And then mm -hmm. last year, my mother passed away. So now oh, it's gosh. just, yeah. that's just my sister's had 14 surgeries and is not feeling all that great. So, so, and my son is in England, he's in the air force. Oh, and wow. my other son is, you know, like three hours away. So it was quiet. Yeah. That's nice though. You get a chance to catch up with everybody later. I'm sure. Um, I always like a quiet holiday myself, like FaceTime me later, you know? <laughs> Oh, yes. Well, the, the joke I always tell is that uh, for years uh, we spent Christmas in a um, in a uh, Chinese restaurant because that, that's the only thing that was open near a hospital. Yeah, that's right. Where we spent most of our time. With. Yeah, dude, don't I know it. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, so the holidays are a very tough time. Yeah, they uh, are. And they're, they're a tough time for everybody. Yeah, and, totally. And so yeah. I'm really glad that they're over. Quite yeah, soon. I know. And, like, you know, the hype around it and the anxiety, it makes it just – it can make it that much worse. You know, I know people are excited, but sometimes it can make it feel like there's a lot of extra pressure and, you know, Oh, there's tons of pressure and, the, and you got to go buy stuff and, and then yeah. what do you buy? And if they don't yeah. like it and, and, and stuff. So I've resigned myself to, I just send money. That's, you know, the older you get classic, you just send money. Yep. People are always happy to get it. They are. Then they can go do whatever the hell they want to with it. That's right. They don't have to worry about it. Let's talk about you, though. Tell yeah. us about yourself a little bit. Yeah. So my first book, as you mentioned, just came out, which uh, is very exciting. Um, yeah, I'm a writer type person of all types. Uh, this is my first book. Um, I've done, you know, freelance 
uh, journalism and essay writing um, for places like uh, Runner's World, HuffPost, um, Teen Vogue, you know, a little of this, a little of that. Um, and then I also do, you know, as you mentioned, like digital strategy and copywriting, just sort of all the different ways that you can use writing to pay the bills. So that's, you know, my main uh, gig there. Um, but yeah, yeah, I've been working, you know, uh, working toward this book that just came out for a good four or five years at this point. So it's a very exciting time to have it finally out in the world. Um, and like we were talking about a little bit before we got started, just being able to see readers, uh, you know, with it in their hands and talking about it and just hearing about the impact it's having on people is just fantastic. So it's been very exciting. And you're doing a, uh, um, a reading mm -hmm. in Washington, DC. That's right. This Friday, um, for anybody who is in the DC area, I will be at politics and prose bookstore at 7 PM doing a reading. So if you know anybody, Oh, very come, good. Come visit your friend. Yeah, I'll be there. Now, when you do a reading, you're not going to read the entire book, are you? I think that that would really be a torturous experience for everyone involved. <laughs> so I'll try to keep it as snappy as I can. <laughs> yeah, I'll probably read, you know, just a, a few little short excerpts from the story, from the beginning, from the middle, from the end. Um, we'll do some Q&A, uh, you know, fun stuff like that. So keep it short and sweet. Exactly. So yeah. <laughs> the title, 30,000 Steps, what does that uh, mean to you? What's it indicative of? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, my editor and I went around and around a lot about the title. <laughs> um, and we arrived at this one because I really liked how it, first of all, the book, uh, among other things, but mostly is about uh, drug addiction and what that, the kind of impact that can have on a whole constellation of people around a person who is struggling with addiction. Um, and so anyone who's familiar with addiction is familiar with um, the 12 steps and 12 step groups. And um, I liked how 30,000 steps evoked that imagery of steps and something that people are familiar with when it comes to drug use and recovery. Um, but in my case, 30,000 steps is roughly how many steps it takes to complete a half marathon for your average person. So the book is also, while it's telling the story of myself and my brother um, and his life, which um, he passed away in 2015 of an overdose while we were living together. Um, so it kind of explores the grief experience of dealing with that through the context of me running um, my first ever half marathon. So I did that after um, as a sort of coping mechanism, which um, you'll see in the book has various pros and various cons. So um, <laughs> it was the title sort of connected all the themes I thought together pretty nicely. How many miles is a half marathon? Is it, it is, 12? It's 13.1. Oh, wow. <laughs> that point one will get you. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. How long have you been running? And is that something that, that was something you've done for years or was it an outcrop of some of your, yeah. your your emotions yeah i mean you know i was always I, I feel like i came to it from a pretty lucky place of like you know i had i was sort of an athletic child like i played soccer i played basketball um i didn't really have to overcome you know i i a lot of like uh difficulty in my adult life to get into running other than like you know the usual stuff of like but I don't want to. And it's boring. Um, so, you know, dealing with that. But um, yeah, I mean, I would kind of do it every, you know, like once in a while, just because I felt like I should, you know, before I would go out for a run every once in a while. When my dog was younger, I used to run with him. Um, but I, it really didn't become like a like a serious thing for me until um, after my brother died. So that so it definitely became a way for me to deal with all the complicated feelings Um and try to channel my energy into something that felt um, 
stabilizing, you know, like, so that's really why I started coming to it and um, being able to have a, a race on the books, you know, like a fixed point in the future to work toward um, I, was really helpful for me. So um, when I was really in down deep in it, um, the running was, was really important to my, my grief experience. Um, so yeah, it, it, yeah. So now it's ever, and that was my first one, uh, that I ever ran. And now since then I've run 10 half marathons, um, and I ran my first full marathon in March. Congratulations. Thanks. That's, yeah. that's like, um, uh, of course, you know, that came from marathon, which is in Greece. Right. And that, that, uh, for those of you that don't know, know the history around that, it's, it was a runner that, uh, was going from a king to another king to tell him, we're in big trouble. We need your help. And so he ran for 23 miles. Is that what it is? Yes. And I, I, I was hoping, I was wondering if you're going to say my favorite detail, which one of my other running friends, uh, always likes to tell this story because he's a comedian. So he's very funny, but it's, it's, you know, the first ever marathoner, the thing he did when he finished the marathon was die. He died. <laughs> So for some reason, everyone was like, yeah, like, let's all do that now. Um, so, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's it's definitely a, a choice to run a marathon. Um, it was really fun. I liked it, but it was the most intense thing I've ever done. Yeah. I, I can, I, I, <laughs> I can't even imagine yeah, that, that doesn't make crazy. any, doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I don't have the right body type. I, never no, I, I think it's fair. You know, like, I think whatever, I t like, yeah, but it, people who are like, not into running it's like you're you will never catch me trying to evangelize or convert anyone like i get it it's crazy uh <laughs> it takes a certain type of like personality and brain chemistry to like be into this so you know if you don't like to run there's lots yeah. of other hobbies out there <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I was a typical boy if there's not a ball involved i'm not sure interested. yeah yeah and like that's the thing about it too yeah i always played um team sports too like and i and i was used to like the stimulation of a team and you know all that stuff so running is very solitary and can be very boring so if you're you know at the time that i got really into it i felt like i had almost had like um i almost felt like my brain had split in two like i felt the most like adrift that i've ever felt so at, coming to it from a place of that really changed everything for me. I mean, I can't say I would even be into running today if I hadn't have come back to it through that really intense grieving experience and found the good stuff in there that I was able luckily to find. Um, it was, it worked for me at that time in my life. And I think that's what kept the passion and the interest going through all this time. Yeah. Isn't that kind of like a, a meditation on your feet uh, when, you know, you're, you're running and you have a, a chance to reflect yeah on things and life yes. and what's going on and and stuff yeah like oh definitely and I, I had a therapist once who you know i've i've always been really interested in meditation like theoretically but i really struggle with like sitting down and doing it and um <laughs> you know and I, I had a therapist once who was like well you know like she was describing i'm gonna like mangle this because you know i don't really have the the breadth of knowledge at all of like buddhist practice or whatever but she described like gardens that's that, at certain buddhist temples where they're meant for people to like walk in a circle or like through on a set path while they're meditating um and that's specifically for people who don't like to sit and meditate and want to kind of like be in motion so i found that really uh gratifying because i was like that is when i really am able to like zone out in the best possible way is when I'm running, when I'm walking the dog, like those are the times where I feel like it's, it works for me to really kind of get into like a, a like a flow mental state rather than, um, you know, anxiety and panic, which is my default mental state. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you know, um, I have a, I interviewed a gentleman. His name is G. Gordon Scott, and uh, G. Yeah, G. Scott Graham, excuse me. And he went to a Buddhist, and he's done this like a, uh, he said like seven or eight times, where for a whole week or ten days actually, they will not talk. Wow. They'll not talk to anybody, and they're with a group of people. Wow. And, you know, and um, and they won't say a word to anybody. I don't. I couldn't do that. I don't know about you. You seem to be a vocal person, and I don't think that you. you Oh yeah. I mean, I talk to the dog when I'm by myself. Like, I mean, you know, I'm desperate. (laughs) Like, I need to talk to somebody. That's crazy. I mean, but I can. I can see. You know, people. I've heard people talk about that, and it sounds cool. I'm sure it's a cool experience. Nope. Not for me. (laughs) Yeah. Do they have like little note cards? Like, how do you? How do you say like? Where's the bathroom? Well, he said he. He said that. Um, one time he was at, um, meal and everybody, what they do is they all shuffle in, they all grab their bowl and they all sit there and they're, they're eating and they're not talking to anybody. There's no conversation. Well, somebody happened to be flatulent that day. And, and so they, uh, so now that's one of the things that you're not supposed to, you know, acknowledge (laughs) when you're having a silent moment. That's the original human language though. You know, I mean, (laughs) exactly. Can't fight it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, and, and so the, the whole room busted up and stuff and That's they all funny. got in trouble for it anyway, <laughs> and anyway so yeah. so but the book is doing well i understand yeah yeah it's being pretty well received which is great um you know getting some cool buzz it was a, a it was a pick of the month for good morning america in december so if anyone's a good morning america fan be sure to check that out um yeah people seem to be enjoying so it's it's difficult right like it's hard it's a very difficult story um and i you know anyone listening you know if you have like had traumatic experiences or deaths in the family i want to you know flag that for people it deals with that stuff a lot it can be very intense um but you know the reason that i felt like this like burning obsession with telling the story is just because i knew there were so many people who could relate to this um and that would hopefully uh find comfort in it and um, that's ultimately what I was trying to do. So the book is, is not intended to be like salacious or upsetting just for the sake of, of being that I'm trying to just show everyone, like, here's what it was like so that I can show you where we're going and where we end up at the end, which to me is a much, you know, more peaceful, hopeful place. Well, considering that, uh, the, the statistics are the, the, the statistics for 2021 were that, um, a hundred thousand people died of overdose in this country due to fentanyl and, and other reasons. And so you, you've got a built in audience of people that are going through the exact same thing that you went through. I got to ask you though, what's it like living with someone who you love dearly, your brother who is uh, addicted and is dealing with that. And you can see him kind of go through that decline that they tend to go through mm-hmm. what's that like it's weird right because on on the one hand like it's obviously terrible right like it's it's basically exactly what you would imagine in terms of how terrible it is you know you you're watching someone who you love so much and who you know better than pretty much anyone on planet earth struggle um and you feel like you still can't really give them what they need um and that's very very hard um but the other part of it is that it's still your loved one who you love. And I mean, this is unique to my experience, but like my brother was like a very uh, 
funny, fun person. And he was always a pleasure to be around. So I think especially lately, as I think, you know, as I talk about this and think about this, like we had a blast living together, like we had fun. And like the thing that you think is going to happen when something like this is happening is that it will really like, you know, it'll be like you see on like a soap opera. It'll be like some big, it'll be, and you'll have this big intervention and like everyone, like everything will get crazy. And like, for the most part, life was pretty normal. Um, he, and again, and he had an experience that a lot of people who are addicted to substances have where he had a normal job. Like he had a shit together pretty much. He just had this thing that was, that was a problem on and off. And that the real struggle of it was we all struggled to communicate openly about when he was or was not using and what we could or could not do about it. So it was more of a thing of like, I would quietly be worried. And then I would be like, but no, he seems fine, but you should do something. But like, what does doing something even mean? You know, like at the end of the day, when you're an adult too, like we're all adults. I didn't want him to be like dragged away. And I didn't think that that was important, like, or helpful, you know? So you really just try your best to like sit with, your loved one and and listen to them and be there for them in the ways that you can. And um, definitely knowing what I know now, there are a lot of things I would have done differently in terms of my ability to show up for him and my ability to be there in a way that was meaningful um, that could have hopefully, you know, I mean, you know, not to go there changing outcomes and stuff. It is what it is, but there's a lot that people can do now. If you have a loved one who's dealing with this, if you live with them, if you don't, there are lots of ways that you can prepare yourself to respond if they uh, take a bad dose or overdose. Um, there are ways that you can show up and show love without showing judgment and kind of help people understand that like it is possible to survive this. I think, you know, my brother struggled for so long. I think we like I certainly uh, struggled to imagine him having a happy adult life. And I think that something I've really learned from talking to people in recovery and people who've been through this is that it's very possible. In fact, it's usually probable if you get the right treatment. So there are lots of people out there walking around, um, living super happy, super fulfilled lives in recovery who've been through situations that would make your hair stand up like the stuff some of these people have been through and the way that they've been able to turn their lives around and come back from it is incredible. So, you know, that's something I wish I had understood a little better at the time. Um, but yeah, it's this weird feeling of simultaneously everything's normal and simultaneously you're kind of just like waiting for the other shoe to drop. So it can be kind of a queasy place to be, but we still, there was a lot of joy in there too. You know, and I tried to communicate that in the book. Like we had a lot of fun together and he was a really fun, cool person. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. By the way, we're talking with uh, Jess Keefe. If you want to find out more about her, go to her website, which is Jess Keefe. K-E-E-F-E dot com. And you can find out more about the book. There's reviews and all kinds of stuff that you can go there. I wanted to ask you, though, was he when he was struggling, was it a struggle or did he use and then not use? How did that work? Yeah, I mean, he was um, in and out of it, I think, for a long time, which I get the impression now is pretty common. Um, he in earnest really struggled from a young age um, with substance use and also with mental health issues, which is also very common. So it can kind of be this vicious cycle where an individual feels like something's not right with them. Um, and the substances become a way to make whatever that thing that doesn't feel right, feel better, you know? So a lot of the stuff, another big, you know, misconception is that everybody who's 
addicted to uh, any type of substance, drugs or alcohol is sort some sort of like, you know, life of the party, party animal. And I think a lot of the time it's actually the opposite is true. A lot of times people who get uh, addicted are people who uh, feel depressed, feel anxious, um, feel like there's something that like that doesn't connect for them about who they are and what, what they're doing in the world. Um, and I think that that was really the case with Matt. So it wasn't like, you know, he was going out and raging every night. It was more like he was uh, self-medicating in secret to try and make it so he could get through his day. Um, and so, yeah, so there were times where he, it was worse. And then there were times where it got better. And then there were times where it got bad again. Um, and I think also too, toward the end of his life, he had been doing really well. And this, I think is a common story. Um, and that's the trouble with the, um, drug supply being so poisoned right now is that a lot of times, uh, if you're in a situation where you're using again after a long period of not using, especially with opioids, your um, tolerance goes way down. So if you um, feel the urge to use again and you do end up using, the old dose you took could be too strong and you might not be aware. You also might not be aware what's actually in your drugs. Um, and that's, I think, a huge contributor to why the drug overdose numbers are just like through the roof right now. People don't really know what they're getting um, and, the, and the supply is so toxic. So. You know, you're right. There was a, a um, friend of a friend that was going through recovery mm -hmm. and was doing really well. Mm -hmm. And they found him in a motel room with a needle in his arm. Yeah. Yeah. Because he'd, he'd used, um, it either had fentanyl in it or something that, or was a dose that he could handle before, but he couldn't yeah. handle it now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, it's hard. Like, I think uh, the other thing that makes these situations so dangerous is that people feel such enormous shame around their drug use. Um, and no one wants to, you know, put their hand up and say, uh, guess what? I'm struggling and I feel like I need to use again, especially someone, you know, with my brother, like I didn't necessarily make myself super available to him as a safe person to talk to. I didn't really understand what that meant. Um, I thought I was being supportive and I think I was in certain ways, but I didn't necessarily say to him, like, if you need to use drugs, I will sit with you while you do it, which, which, you know, I think can be a thing that can save people's lives. You know, if there's someone else there and they see you, we can intervene in the case of an overdose, CPR, naloxone, calling EMS. Like these are the things that keep people alive. But the, the deadliness of the overdose is that a lot of people feel like they have to do it alone. So that's why you find people in motels, you find them in a McDonald's bathroom, like, no one goes in there to die. They go in there and are like, okay, I think I'm going to just use this one time and then I'll be good, you know? And then unfortunately it goes the other way and, and then it's too late. So it's, it's a really is a sad thing that, yeah. that, that yeah. people have to go, are going through that. Now, what did he, did he start? Um, he obviously didn't start with the hard stuff. No, which, no. As a teenager and that yeah, kind of thing. Like, you know, it's the usual stuff. And like, I think it's more like when you're a young person, it's like, you start with what's available to you. And unfortunately, also, when I was a teenager and in high school, uh, Oxycontin was very available. Um, that was just as easily available as marijuana, you know, like it was easy to get your hands on this stuff. Um, and so it was, you know, I think in his case, and in most cases, it's like, you know, you start with what is available to you. And it's not necessarily a matter of like, whether or not something was like a gateway for him. Right. It, I think it was more about, he had 
a nugget of this in him and was gonna do it, you know, in whatever way was available. And rather, you know, I don't think, you know, as, as deadly and horrible as Oxycontin is, I don't think Oxycontin made my brother into a person with addiction. I think he was a person who had an addiction and was going to use what was available to him. So, um, you know, it started when we were in high school and then, you know, in college on and off. Um, and we were all really surprised, uh, when we realized that he was literally injecting heroin, that felt like a huge shock. Um, to, to me and to our loved ones. Um, but in retrospect, it probably shouldn't have been, um, because I guess that's, that's really the nature of how addiction progresses, you know, like if people, you need to use more and more to get the same feeling, you know? So it's like, and, and especially in cases of like Oxycontin, right? Like we could all get those pills really easy when we were 16, 17 years old and they were cheap. And then, um, came the regulatory crackdowns and it was harder to find them. So it's like, well, I'm still addicted to opioids, but I can't get Oxycontin anymore. So what am I going to do? heroin you know you're going to use what's available unfortunately um and yeah. and the, the thing is that they that it and that is so true is that in the beginning in the beginning <laughs> it's fun and vivacious and it's a good time and it's a great way to not think about stuff for you know a little mm -hmm. bit and stuff but after you do it for a while then you go off of it and then you mm -hmm. feel like crap and totally. then it's like okay now I got to go do this because I feel like crap and I don't want to feel like crap anymore. Exactly. Yeah. There was, I, I, I worked also too. I've worked with addiction nonprofits and with people in this space uh, for the past few years. And I've learned so much from all the amazing people in the space. Uh, and something I've, I've heard people say is that, you know, it gets to a point for where people aren't really using drugs or substances to get high. They're using them to feel normal. It's just like exactly how you described, you know, like it gets to the point where you can't really start your day unless you, you know, uh, drink a bottle of wine or have your pills or do whatever. And it's not because you're like some kind of like hedonist, like party, party guy. It's like, you're just trying, you got like a meeting, <laughs> you know, you got stuff going on and you need to like, make sure that you feel okay. So it ends up just going so upside down that, um, really the best way for people to come out of it is with medical treatment. You know, like uh, addiction is a, a substance use disorder is a medical condition. And I think that's something that gets, um, forgotten often as well. And really, I think that that's really start. I'm I, like, I think that's really starting to change now finally. But I mean, with my, my, my family's experience when we had Matt in the hospital, uh, and this was in like, I mean, the first time he was the first time he overdosed and had to go to the hospital, it was 2011. So it was like 10 years ago. Um, and this was in Boston. We were in a, an elite medical environment. You know, this wasn't just like some chump hospital. This was a, this was a well-regarded, uh, medical facility in Boston, Massachusetts. And they were kind of just like, he shouldn't use drugs. You should tell him to stop using drugs. That would be our medical recommendation. You know, it's, it's so yeah. interesting that, that, and I'm really, I'm really glad that, that society is changing from the standpoint of in those days, it was like, Oh, you know, you should just quit. You, you are a weakling. What's quit. the matter with you? Yeah. Why, mm -hmm. why, why are you continuing to do this when you yeah. know it's not good for you? Mm -hmm. but the reality is, is that you are, for whatever reason, your brain operates in a different way. Yeah. And you and you're stuck with it. And, yeah. uh, and you really have to really work hard to get it under control. And a lot of, and some people can, some people can't. Mm -hmm. um, my, my, now <laughs> I'm a little bit older than you. <laughs> Just a smidge, baby. <laughs> so I got to tell you what my, you know, what my brother started with. What? He took a Mason jar. And he put two holes in it. And then he got turpentine. 
Oh, and he put wow. turpentine into the jar, and then he would do what's called snuffing. Yeah, yeah. Whippets, those are popular in my high school. Like, yeah, it's 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 crazy. I mean, it's just like there's something inside. Uh, it's not, it's such a horrible age, you know. Like it's it's just really I like think about you know like what makes someone want to do something like that at a young age. And I just want to like cry, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, um, it's hard. And the thing about it is like, if it's easier to literally fill a Mason jar with turpentine and huff it, than it is to, I don't even know, get services that might actually, like, I mean, how, what does that say about the services we have available? Right. That like, that's easier than like, you know, getting some kind of actual help. Oh, and, and in those days, my mother found it and found him that uh -huh. was kind of passed out. Right. So she took him, guess where? To the pediatric, to the, our, our uh, pediatric doctor. Mm -hmm. His name was Dr. Harris, okay. and he was like 65 at the time. Yeah. This is in the 60s. Yeah. So he had no earthly idea what any oh, of this sure. was yeah. or, or how, to, how to deal with it or how to help my mom, which is, you know, at that point, she had an opportunity to help deal with it. Mm -hmm. and so then he ended up. Um, going the entire gamut, he he was a he was a case of a, a case a day man. Yeah, <clears throat> Bud Light was his favorite, mm -hmm. and and stuff and and it was it took him years. It took him literally years, and I don't know that he ever actually quit. He yeah. went into hiding, yeah. which is what a lot of people do. Yeah, right. I mean, you have like. Yeah, withdrawing, it makes sense, you know? I mean, I definitely, you know, it's not the same, but, you know, it's like, I think all of us can relate to, like, having a behavior that we don't love, that we do, and that you're kind of embarrassed about, and you, like, wouldn't necessarily want to, like, talk about it with, like, your loved ones. Um, yeah, I, it makes perfect sense, you know? I mean, people act like people with addiction are, like, crazy or not. Everything they do is logical in its way, you know? It's like, it's upsetting, but like, it makes a lot of sense, you know? And I think that, and it's, and unfortunately the saddest part of that story is like, your mom had the right instinct. You should be able to take your child to the pediatrician when that happens and say, help me like, you know? And, uh, I think that that is finally starting to change. And I've heard some incredible stories, um, about individuals who've gone into their doctor's office and really sat there and were so nervous and so afraid to say something. And then they finally felt like safe enough with their doctor to say, uh, you know, I'm drinking a lot and I don't love that or whatever they're going to do to open up the conversation. And those doctors like are on it. So there's some incredible doctors out there who are starting to understand all of this stuff and seeing the urgent need for this care to be connected in a primary care office. And they say, cool, let's get you this phone number. Let's find out if what kind of program would be good. Let's, let's call you tomorrow and check on you, you know, just like stuff like that. People underestimate what a big difference that can make in terms of caring for patients. You know, it's, and it's, it's hard because of all the, you know, draconian ways that we operate our healthcare system in this country. It really doesn't incentivize care, you know, it incentivizes, you know, 15 minute increments and prescriptions, you know, and that's not always, and there are prescriptions that work for addiction and their impact, the gold standard for opioid use disorder is a prescription. So people should be being prescribed things, but like, um, just that sort of baseline of like, Hey, how you doing type care makes a huge impact for these illnesses. But too often, you know, this, this is not an issue that's taught in medical school at all. They don't spend any time on this, you know? So I think a lot of doctors, uh, just straight up have no idea. Like, and I think that the, the experience that your mom had in the sixties, um, in a lot of parts of this country, they could, some, a, a young parent could go in right now and have that exact same experience. 
Um, and that's deeply upsetting. So I think it's changing, but it's, it's, it's bad. You know, I have to tell you a story. Yeah. Um, I interviewed a guy. I'm, I'm so lucky. I get to be interview the coolest people like you oh, and, you. uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me. And she had her son mm-hmm. had a, um, um, gastrointestinal thing going on mm-hmm. and he ended up having to have his large intestine removed when he was 18 years old. Wow. And they gave him a prescription of 60 Oxycontin because it was brand new at the time. Right. And they said, oh, this is a great drug and it's, mm-hmm. it's not habit forming and all that kind of stuff. So they gave him 60 and then another 60. And by the time he got done with that, because he was now on and had a colostomy bag and then he had mm-hmm. to have surgery to turn his, I don't know how they do this, turn your small intestine into your large intestine. Whoa. Who knows? Uh, but, uh, um, but he was, he was hooked yeah. and he, he ended up dying at 31. Oh, it's horrible. And, and so what she's taken it upon is her mission in life. And uh, I didn't know that they don't have this already. But in a, in a particular hospital, you've got nurses, you've got doctors, you've got interns. But none of them, they've all got things they're doing. They're all running around. They're all doing their 15 minutes with each patient kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And she is advocating a what they call a care uh, nurse who is somebody that can be there, sit with you, explain how the medications work, explain why you should wean yourself off as soon as you can mm-hmm. and all that and uh and the doctors were saying no no it's not it's not financially viable and she proved to them that if you can keep two people a month from having to go back to the emergency room because they have re gone and had an overdose or whatever two people a month you can pay for the entire program totally and so that's that's the kind of things that we are dealing with. Yeah, is is the is the lack of of understanding that it ain't that hard. Yeah, we can do it, but it's a matter of caring. Totally. And like, so first of all, that's an incredible story, and what an incredible woman. And also, I'm so happy and like heartened to hear it's hard. You know, losing someone this way is so hard, and it can really send people into an absolute tailspin of confusion. And since there's not a lot of good information about this issue, people react to these kinds of losses in all sorts of ways. Um, I think that the way that she reacted is so admirable because ultimately it shows that what she understands is that every patient is different and every patient can be empowered with information. You know what I mean? She didn't turn around and say, no one should have Oxycontin anymore. Um, she turned around and said, these drugs have risks. These drugs have serious risks and people need to have someone that can sit down with them, look them in their face and and talk about this in a serious way. And that's what makes a difference with people. And having someone that's like on your care team, that's accountable, that will call you up three days later and say, how are you doing? How is the medication feeling? Can we step it down? Um, rather than just saying, you know, here's three months supply of this medication, go whole hog, see and never, like that's what we're doing right now. And the alternative to that isn't nothing. It's not no pain management for anyone ever. The alternative is is having a, a team of people who can uh, triage around patients and understand what's going on and offer human assistance, you know? But so much of what we try to do now, especially is oriented around removing humans from situations, removing humans from the tech, removing humans from the healthcare system, like having a computer roll in and talk to you. You're like, you know, we're getting... <laughs> We're getting farther and farther away from like the basics of what make care good, which is people, you know, people are the thing that make healthcare work. And like, you know, my mom's a nurse and has been like, you know, like 
healthcare workers are just angels from heaven. Like the way that they care about their patients is, is unmatched and they want to care. They want to do this work. And I think sometimes um, administrations and CEOs and people who control the healthcare system insurers are the ones that are standing in the way of healthcare workers exactly doing the work they know they can do and want to do. Um, and, and she's exactly right. And that's the thing is like, you, even you, th you think you crack the code, right? You think you figure it out. Like you sit down with people and you're like, I'm here to tell you that this thing I've come up with is not only better for people, but it's cheaper and easier to do. And people will look with, at you with a straight face and say no. And at that point, it's like, it's, it's, to me, it's more a lack of will than it is anything else. It's like, if you just don't want to do this, say so, you know, like, don't tell me I don't have the information. Don't tell me I'm not crossing my T's and checking, you know, like she clearly put in all the legwork and then they're still going to sit there and be like, oh, I don't know. It's like, yeah. if you don't, if you don't want to do it, just say so. But like, I'm right. <laughs> you know, exactly. As a matter of fact, he, um, she also, she also advocates that every household should have like like every household that's got an allergic child has got an EpiPen. Mm -hmm. Every every household should have because quite frankly, you don't know. <clears throat> I um have a, a friend that his uh, son uh, <laughs> let him go. They let him go to um, Arizona State. Mm -hmm. They didn't know that he had a problem, but that was a party school down there, mm -hmm. and so he came back addicted to heroin, and they didn't know. Yeah, and nobody had talked to them or whatever, and and he started stealing money from one mm -hmm. of them because they need he needed his fix and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, he did not have a um, um, a um, overdose, but you there are people I'm sure in this world that they that they've come home and their and their child was in an overdose situation. Mm -hmm. So there is a, a nasal spray now. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a Narcan, um, and it's it you can get somebody out of the overdose situation temporarily mm -hmm. until you can get them to the hospital so that they can live. And she advocates that every house should have that. Do you? Definitely. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's like the number one easiest, easiest win. I mean, this medication has been around forever. It is so safe. You're never going to get in a situation where, I mean, if I, if I narcan myself right now, like nothing would happen. Like if I would be totally fine. There's zero risk to having it around. Um, and it can, it can be the difference between someone surviving or not. It's a miracle. Like I've heard EMTs who've used it literally describe it as a miracle, like witnessing Lazarus rise from the dead. Like it's incredible. Like they have people who are on the verge um, and they come back and it's incredible. And that's someone to someone, you know what I mean? Like that really matters. Like that really is just like, it's like, I think sometimes this conversation about Narcan or Naloxone gets so into like, people get like galaxy brain about the like, what about enabling drug use? Or like, what about this? Or what about that? Oh my God. And like, it's, it, this is the situation with, with Naloxone is it's been studied like so much. Like there's so much research on availability in Naloxone does not increase drug use. It doesn't make people feel like they can take bigger risks. All it does is save lives. And the, and the lives are really like what matters. Like that's somebody to someone that really is. And there's someone to themselves, you know, like that's a human individual. And if you have, you know, if you're a person that has a shred of morality, I think that, you know, regardless of how you feel about whatever else, if, if someone's going to say, do you think that having Naloxone in your house, if you could even have the possibility of saving someone's life, I think most people would say, yeah. Um, and it really can be that simple. I think sometimes it gets distracting, but it really is that simple. Well, in case you, in case somebody's wondering, uh, this was uh, several years ago. I, I was driving a bus. I, I drove a metro bus in Seattle, mm -hmm. <laughs> and 
excuse me. And I was um, at at the at the bus zone, and I, I hear right behind me, "Come on, Charlie, get up, get up, wake up." And um, and Charlie wasn't waking up, and so the guy tried to pull him off of the seat. He landed on the floor and was just lying there, and they couldn't, he couldn't get him to up at all. So I called for for aid, and mm-hmm. uh, the aid guys came. and And in those days, only medic one around here, medic one is specialized. Mm-hmm. That only they could have Narcan. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, so there were like five or six um, fire department people, and they had him on uh, blood pressure. They were checking his blood pressure. They had his heart. They were monitoring and all that kind of stuff. He wasn't moving. He wasn't doing anything until medic one got there and they administered this shot. Yeah. And it was like he just popped up. Wow. And, so and you've seen it. Yeah. He just popped up and started walking off the bus and they said, damn, that's amazing. Yeah. And the guy said, and uh, I said, so is he okay? And he said, oh, no, no, no. He's not out of the woods at all. It wears off in a little bit, but yeah. he'll be comatose in, in about 20 minutes if we don't get him to the hospital. Right, 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 right. Yes. And that's crucial too. like, you know, people you, you, if in an overdose situation, please always call 911. Yes, yes, yes. And it's, it's really sort of amazing um, because it like, it really just, it knocks the opioids right off the receptors. Like that's really what it does, like on a biological level, um, which is amazing because that's really what it is, you know, that, that results in an overdose death is, and that was something I didn't really understand until all this happened was, um, you know, I feel like my impression of like what an overdose is, was very influenced by like, you know, Pulp Fiction or whatever. I thought it was kind of this like a bloody, like explosive kind of weird thing that happened. But like, really when you're overdosing on, on opioids, uh, opioids depress your breathing. So your brain just kind of like forgets to keep breathing. So you stop breathing and then you die. Um, which to me is, uh, you know, I mean, it's sad anyway, but like, that is just like, so sad to me, you know, it's just like, you just kind of, you're, you're, you're here and then you're not, it's so easy to slip off. Um, so the, yeah, naloxone, Narcan, whatever you can get your hands on, it's a miracle drug and everybody should have it. I carry it in my purse when I go out, you never know, you know, you never know who you're going to see. And I've heard incredible stories, especially now that it's becoming more uh, available and more people have had this experience. Um, people start carrying, you know, people, reverse overdoses out in the world. It's, it's amazing. You know, I think that it's really never going to harm anybody. It's only a good thing to have. Well, and if you've ever seen that, if you're, if you've ever seen being a bus driver, I've seen it. So if if you've never seen as somebody that um, is just sitting there one moment and then the next thing, you know, they've just fall over. Wow. And uh, there's this one guy who was sitting on a bench and there was no back to it. And I, I looked at him and he looked he kind of wandering, wavering back and forth. And I looked away, I looked back and all I saw were his feet wow. on the other, because he just fell over backwards. And, and then I went over to and you couldn't wake him up. Wow. And so we had to call the medics and they came and I'm, I think they revived him, but, but what a, I mean, how crazy is it too, that like, I mean, I'm really, you know, this is how it's going to sound very obvious to you, but now that you're telling these stories, I'm like, wow, a bus driver is not only required to physically operate the bus, like drive it in traffic, but like all those people on there, like if someone falls over, like you're the guy, I guess, huh? Jeez. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. Cause well, you've got, cause I'll have, when I was driving, I would have as many as 60, 70 people on the bus wow. at any given time. And it, it, it struck me that it was like, if you get into an accident now, there's going to be problems. Though. Yeah. You know, so it's. That's you high have to pressure. Be, 
Yeah. I love yeah. the bus. Thank you for driving the bus. <laughs> I love the bus. I always say thank you to the bus driver. It's an incredible job. It's very important. Well, you you are, bless your soul, because <laughs> most people don't. But, ah. but to be fair, most bus drivers have what I call, and the, we're getting off to, to an aside here, but they, they have what I call the a golden, a golden handcuffs. Mm-hmm. They don't like their job. Mm. They hate the people that they're 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 servicing, <laughs> but they make too much money to quit. Sure, I mean I think a lot of people could relate to that. <laughs> and and so you know I I enjoyed the job. I yeah. and the people made me laugh. Yeah, you yeah, know, and stuff. So yeah. by the way, again we're talking with uh, with uh, uh, Jess, and she is a, a Keith K E E F E, and go to Jess Keith Jess. God. It really is a tongue twister. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> JessKeefe.com, and yeah. you can find out more about her. And she's a literary um, giant of note. She's got all <laughs> kinds of wonderful reviews, and she's done a lot. She do humor. You do all kinds of stuff. So yeah. when did you start writing, by the way? I mean, you know, if you want to go way back with it, I was always a journal child. <laughs> I was an avid journaler from a from a small age. I, ha- I still have, have them. them. Oh, God, I was going to ask. Yeah. Uh, do you read them now? Do, do you get... Like, I, I have to really be in a certain mindset to, like, want to crack that shoebox and read them because it's obviously, like, the most embarrassing experience of your life. But I thought it would be funny. Yeah, maybe someday it'll be funny. I also really enjoy it. There's that NPR show Mortified that they used to do where people would kind of read from their old journals and stuff like that. So I would always kind of be like, maybe someday I'll, like, get the courage to do it because that crack, it cracks me up. Yeah, it's very funny. So, you know, I was always, you know, this with my little journal and stuff. But yeah, I always enjoyed it. Um, I had, you know, some teachers when I was young who were very encouraging to me. So I always kind of knew that that was um, a, a strength that, that I had and that I enjoyed doing. Um, my my parents, too, encouraged me. Like, my dad is a big reader, and he would always read to us a lot. Like, books were a big part of our childhood, luckily for me. So um, always enjoyed books, always enjoyed writing. And then, yeah, I was, you know, your typical English major, college kid. And, you know, my big plan when I graduated from college was to write for magazines, which is, you know, sort of like a dinosaur industry at this point. So basically, my my postgraduate experience was watching that industry just like evaporate from underneath me, which was an interesting experience. Um, but I've been able to hack it on a freelance level and, you know, working for different sorts of publications over the years and then, you know, putting together some stuff with corporate and nonprofit communications. I still get to write full time. So. It's it's kind of like I want to go to work for a blockbuster. That's who I want to work for. Like literally, <laughs> yeah. I love movies and yeah. I love, you know and I just it, love an independent but, newspaper, right? Oh, oh yeah, not anymore. Well, <laughs> there are a couple of them in in uh, Washington that that's yeah 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 yeah. I feel like Seattle still is like one of the last places where you can get a good indie paper. There's yeah, a good it, one there, it, right? Yeah. yeah. That yeah. it's, it's it's there's one that's still there but good uh, yeah. a lot of them are, are yeah i mean there were multiple when i was young you know i grew up in the boston area there was the phoenix like which i was loved the, the improper boston there were a lot of like cool independent publications um it was you know it just kind of you're young so it never occurs to you that those things are just going to disappear around you um so it's kind of a bummer but well you know the next book should be about the coming of age of a 13 year old girl yeah, and, and you could use your your journal for that. Finally, yes, yeah. my, yeah. finally. Oh my god, all my humiliations. 
it wouldn't be yours. It'd be this person that you know. Mm, yes. Yeah. Finally. I mean, I, I am thinking, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking my next project might be fiction. So that actually could work out just fine. It could be well, good, you good know. for you. I'm, yeah, yeah. It's you, you are such a delight. You're as a matter <laughs> of fact, you're so delightful. Let's do some more. Shall okay, we? Yeah. Let's do it. Sounds great. <laughs> so what we're going to do is, uh, this is part one and this will be labeled part one. And then we are going to, I'm going to give you, um, let's see, we've got 10 minutes before the next show starts. So I want to give you a, a, a little break to maybe have a cup Great. of coffee or whatever you need. Cool. And uh, and then uh, we'll reconvene on KKNW 1150 AM. And, we'll, and I want to really talk about um, the grief side of it, how you overcame that. And, and, you know, your marathoning and, and all, all the things and de-emphasize, not to de-emphasize, but to understand that that happened, yeah. nothing you could do about it, but yeah. there's a lot that you could do after that. That's right. And you've, and you've done that and you are just a, a, a an energetic, smiling, wonderful person. And you're just, you're fun to talk to. Thank you. Oh, thank you. You're fun to talk to too. I, you know, I could, I could chat all day, so let's just go ahead and do that. <laughs> Oh, uh, very good. So you, you, let me do this, and then okay. then we're going to take a little break. Okay. And then uh, we will see you on KKNW at uh, at three o'clock. It's ten minutes away. So All right. if you're listening on uh, on YouTube now, just uh, hang out for ten minutes, and then we'll be right back. So cool. Hold on. I'll be right back. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, Remember, be kind to one another because each other's all we got.